Romans chapter 2, verses 12 to 29. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you're instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in law, having in law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you not? Do you rob idol? Do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is the very word of God. Life is filled with important signs and markers. There are geographical signs to help us navigate, to make sure that we get to our planned destination. There are nutritional signs that help us make decisions about what we should and should not put into our bodies. There are also signs and markers of identity. We can sometimes tell by a certain sign or feature um, that two persons are related, that they belong to the same family. We've got some extended family members in here. And so when I meet them, I'm like, yeah, I can tell who you are. But of course, signs can be deceiving. I'm still confused. Yeah, right, not the twins. I'm still having, is that what you're thinking? I'm trying to figure it out. I'm trying to figure it out. Um, but of course, signs can be deceiving. I, I'm still confused by the signs at I-44 and I-235. I cannot figure, th- I'm, I don't know how many times I've gone the wrong way in that construction zone. I, I, I still cannot tell if that granola bar that I like to eat is healthy or not. And of course, your doppelganger probably doesn't share your DNA. Or maybe. 
So one of the important questions that lurks just beneath the surface of the book of Romans, and indeed much of the New Testament, is the question, who are the people of God? And it's an important question because the people of God are those, according to the scriptures, who will inherit the kingdom, God's eternal kingdom. They are those whom God has saved and will save on the day of his final return and judgment. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you know the answer to the question, who are the people of God? The people of God, the Old Testament makes quite plain, is the people uh, that make up the nation of Israel. The Jews are the chosen people of God. You familiar at all with your Bibles, your Old Testament? You know that that is the case. And if you deny it, if you say, well, maybe not, then understand that you would be perceived as someone who is proclaiming a different doctrine from the Old Testament. You have a doctrine that contradicts a pretty clear teaching of the Bible. But here's the problem when we're reading through the book of Romans, and especially this kind of a text. This is a text, by the way, that um, many people just kind of hurry past because we're getting to some really good stuff in chapter 3. But this is an inflammatory text. The Apostle Paul, it seems, has denied what is clearly taught in the Old Testament. Does that matter to you? In our passage last week, Paul said that Jew as well as Gentile stands in danger of God's wrath and final judgment. God, he says, will show no partiality to Jew or Gentile. So is this a contradiction to the Old Testament? Is Paul preaching a different message than what is clearly preached in the Old Testament? And if so, how can you trust what he's saying? How can you trust the gospel that he's articulating in the book of Romans? Now, the passage before us this morning answers these kinds of questions. And I I understand that for many of us, questions like this seem completely irrelevant, insignificant. But I, I hope that as we go along, you can begin to see that if the gospel Paul preaches is the true gospel, it depends upon him wiggling himself out of this provocative question. Who are the people of God? And Paul would say, if you say the Jews, he would say, well, you're not wrong. But let's see how he unpacks it. How can we identify the people of God? Paul says the problem here is we are mistaking their identity because we're looking at the wrong signs. You're looking at a sign, but it's the wrong sign. And so Paul says there are different markers. And here in these verses, he gives us three identifiers of the people of God. He says the people of God 
are marked by true righteousness, the honor that they give to God, and what he calls the circumcision of the heart. So that's weird. True righteousness, the honor that they give to God, and circumcised hearts. If you are a member of God's people, and therefore an heir to his kingdom, guaranteed that you will escape his wrath and final judgment, if you're one of those people, then you have to be marked by the true signs, the true identifiers of the people of God. And Paul's argument is that this is not in contradiction to the Old Testament. It's indeed what the Old Testament's pointing to, namely true righteousness, honor to God, and a circumcised heart. So first, take a look at verses 12 to 16, and notice that Paul argues here in these verses that God's people, his true people, are marked. They bear the sign of true righteousness. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, first of all, back up again to verse 11. I've already alluded to this. We are told in verse 11, Romans 2.11, really important verse, God will show no partiality when it comes to his judgment against sin. None. Not, not a hint. No partiality. All sinners will be judged equally, he says. N- no one will hold any advantage over another at the bar of God's judgment. Now, that probably seems right to you and your Western view. It would mean, of course, that this is just fairness. Of course, God's going to judge all people equally. But what Paul stresses here, again, is quite inflammatory. He's saying that Jews have zero advantage over Gentiles when it comes to God's righteous judgment. And, and, and why would anyone think otherwise? Why would this be inflammatory to Uh, A first century reader, even if it's not to you and me. And the answer is because if Israel gets the same treatment, if Jews get the same treatment as Gentiles do, this is bad news for all of us. See, the story of the Bible is that God has promised to save his universe, his cosmos. The story of the Bible is that God made a good world, and God is jealous to see his good world redeemed and restored. And the story of the Bible is that God sets about to bring this salvation and to accomplish it through his chosen people. Again, the Old Testament makes it abundantly clear we're talking about the people of Israel. The promise is given to Abraham and the great nation that descended from him, so that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. It's Genesis 12, 3. It's a critical verse in the Old Testament, and you're going to find out in the New Testament as well. But it's not long, of course, in the story that we begin to see a problem, and it's a problem that's impossible to ignore. The, the, the people of Israel have a very checkered history. Theirs is a story of abuse, abuse of the powerless, deceit, broken promises. 
It's obvious that God did not choose them because he took one glance at them, looked down the corridors of time and thought, now, now these are a people I can do something with. No, the only explanation for why God chose them is because according to Deuteronomy chapter 7, he set his love on them. He selected them to be his treasured possession. But his selection of them did not mean that God would tolerate sin in them any more than he would in anyone else. So he gives them his law and he puts them under obligation to keep it. In Deuteronomy 7, right after God has said, I have chosen you not because of any goodness in you, but simply because I put my love upon you, he says this in Deuteronomy 7, verse 11. You must be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I have set before you. So that's why Paul can say now in Romans 2, verse 12, that those who sin without the law, that is, the Gentiles, the, the people who were not part of God's special people, they will be judged, but so also, he says, will those who sin under the law. They too will be judged for their sin. Now, don't miss Paul's point here, and I'm, I'm, I'm hoping somehow that we can feel the weightiness of his argument. He is saying that to be under the law, that is, to be one of God's chosen people, in the Old Testament, a member of the nation of Israel, a Jew, he says, it will do you no good when it comes to your violation of it. You're not going to be able to stand before God and say, well, yeah, I, I, I messed up, but I'm one of your people. Just because Israel possessed the law of God, and indeed the rest of the Old Testament is essentially their own story, this would give no Israelite any advantage over people from the other nations. Whoever sins will fall under the righteous judgment of God. And the point is even clearer in verse 13. Take a look at it. Paul says, it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God. Now, Paul is deflating anyone who puts their hope in the wrong place, who is looking at the wrong sign. He is specifically dealing here with ethnic Jews who might think that merely being acquainted with God's instruction, with God's law, and with God's ways puts them in some sort of advantage, advantage position before God. But no, Paul says, look what he, look what he writes next, Romans 2.13, this is very controversial. Paul says, it is the doers of the law who will be justified. Does that verse trouble you? Is your doctrine such that when you read Romans 2.13, you, your eyebrows raise a little bit? If not, it should. It should. Just look down in the next chapter, Romans 3, verse 20, and you will see that Paul seems to do a 180 and completely contradict what he just said in Romans 2, 13. It's like he went to bed, woke up the next day, and changed his mind. He, he says in Romans 3, 20, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. You see it? Does that trouble you? If I'm sort of wondering why you're even here today, if that doesn't trouble you, like we're looking to our Bibles and here we have what appears to be a complete contradiction. 
Or Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, where Paul says this, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. So which is it? Doers of the law will be justified, or by works of law you won't be justified. Um, but then again, you've got other texts in the Bible like James 2.24. You probably are aware of this, where the Bible says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Gave Martin Luther, the great reformer, all kinds of fits, didn't it? So here we encounter what is one of the great puzzles in Romans, indeed in the whole Bible. What exactly is the relationship between good works or adherence to God's law and justification? Now, one thing that you have to keep in mind as you're working through this puzzle is that the word justified or justification comes from the same root word as the word that's usually translated righteous or righteousness. The reason it's translated differently in most English Bibles is because we don't have a verb in English to righteous or to be righteous. We don't don't talk that way. Uh, Translations that try to point out the similar word origins usually translate the verb form as to declare to be righteous. But But this then usually raises the question, on what basis can God declare someone to be righteous? So if God says, this person's righteous, you're right to ask, how can he say that? How can he say that person is righteous? And here we must observe this te- here we must observe that this text, nor any others, is arguing that God will declare us righteous on the basis of our obedience to his laws. Paul's going to come back to this and really get after this point later. So I just want you to see right now, if that's the way you're thinking Romans 2.13 means, you have to understand it doesn't actually say that. But what it does say is there's some sort of relationship between righteousness and adherence to God's laws, between God declaring, yes, this is a righteous person, and the fact that they have been obedient in some way to God's laws. In other words, let me just say this. God will not declare us to be righteous if, in fact, we're not. Now, it's a puzzle, and Paul is going to come to this question soon enough, but for now, I simply want you to see that his point here in this text is simply that no one can claim to be righteous before God on the basis of a status they have in the Old Covenant. Simply being a Jew while making one a member of God's chosen people in the Old Covenant did not make them righteous before God. Not if they actually were unrighteous. God will not simply ignore our sin nor the sins of anyone else. God will not look at us, see unrighteousness and say, hey, you know what? Let's just call it good. God doesn't do that. 
God is a just God, not an unjust God. It would be unrighteous for God to say to someone who is unrighteous, well, you're actually just righteous. Are you with me? So when it comes to being right, Paul is quite explicit here in Romans 2.13. There has to be a doing of what is right, not just a hearing of it. Verses 14 to 15, Paul argues that the, the very fact that the Gentiles do on occasion, at least, what the law requires demonstrates that God is not just interested in knowing his ways. He is interested in his ways being followed in his ways being obeyed. And that's because, as we said, the story of God is that God is not merely interested in forgiving sins. Praise God, he forgives sins. But God is interested in new creation. God is interested in radical transformation. He is interested in changing everything that is wrong and making sure it is now right. And that includes you and me. So that God's creation can be what it was always meant to be. So the first marker that we see here is that the people of God are marked by true righteousness. True righteousness. Now, again, we're going to get back to, okay, well, how do we get there? I know you want to get to chapter three, but we're not in chapter three yet. So let's move on in where we are. We learned here that it's simply not enough to be an ethnic Jew in order to be justified, to be right before God. God's plan all along is to see his people transformed, doers of his law, not hearers only. God will only say righteous to those who are truly righteous. He will not say righteous to those who don't deserve The name. So now in verses 17 to 24, he pursues this point a bit further. A true Jew, or the real people of God, must not only be truly righteous, but they must bring honor to God. Of course, these two things are related, but let's take a look. In in Romans chapter 2, beginning now in verse 17... Paul says, if you call yourself a Jew, so let's just pause for a moment and remind ourselves what sometimes we just need to be reminded of. Who is a Jew? The word originally referred to a person coming from the region occupied by the descendants of Judah. It came to be used after the Babylonian exile for all Israelites in general Uh, Because the territory they occupied coming back from Babylon was more or less the territory of of the Judeans, of Judah. So by the time of Paul, as he's writing Romans, to be called a Jew or to call yourself a Jew meant more than just the place that you lived or came from. It referred to a status, a, a status of those who belonged to God's special people, his chosen people. And, and to call yourself a Jew was a way of distinguishing yourself from all other people. It wasn't just an identifier. It was a distinguishing mark. I'm a Jew, which means I'm not among those people. Okay, so a Jew then would be eager to distinguish his or herself from all other people. 
What is it that made Jews different? What were the things that they would look at and say, here are the markers that make me able to call myself a Jew? Notice what Paul says in verses 17 to 20. He mentions eight things, eight markers that in his day were commonly used to say, I'm among God's people. These eight things come in two groups. The first group, Paul speaks of those who rely on the law, boast in God, know God's will, and approve what is excellent. So these are, again, distinguishing characteristics of one who considered himself a Jew, a member of God's chosen people. Now, now these four things are, are good things. These are really good. To rely on the law does not necessarily mean that a person is trusting in his good works rather than trusting in God. To rely on the law may simply refer to the impulse to see it as God's revealed word and therefore to be trusted and obeyed. So I'm going to just try it out on you. Do you rely on the scriptures? I hope you say, yes, yes, we do. Okay, good. You might be a Jew. All right. Here's what he says. How about boasting in God? Do you boast in God? Well, the Apostle Paul will concur with Jeremiah 9, 23, and 24 that the one who boasts at all should make his boast. Guess where? 1 Corinthians 1, 31. Let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. So you boast in the Lord? It's a good thing. What about God's will? Should you seek the will of God? Of course you should. And and should we be taught by the word how to discern between essential and non-essential matters? Yes. Yes. Amen. May, May there be more of God's people who are taught by the word to know what things matter and what things are secondary. Oh, we need believers like that. So these are good things. These are the kinds of things that a Jew would be right to prioritize in his life. These are the kinds of things I commend to you, brothers and sisters, as something that you should prioritize in your life. But in so doing, these would create some sort of distinguishing character from those who don't prioritize them, from non-Jews. So far, so good. But now in verse 19, we see the second group in the eight things that distinguish Jews from Gentiles. And here, the emphasis is on the way that the Jews were to be a blessing to the Gentiles. Now remember, this is Israel's calling. God selects a special people for a vocation, for a purpose. They were supposed to be a light to the nations, or as Paul says here, a guide to the blind. It was through Israel that the Gentiles were to be instructed because it was Israel possessing the sacred scriptures, what Paul calls the embodiment of knowledge and truth, that God's ways were to be made known. But in verse 21, Paul turns the tables. He basically says to the Jew, yes, you were indeed supposed to be all these things, but instead of being a guide to the blind, you're more like the blind leading the blind. And verses 21 to 22, he accuses them of hypocrisy, of not practicing what they preach. He says, while you preach against stealing, do you steal? 
while you say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Now, don't, no doubt many Jews would claim innocence here and say, well, no, I don't. I don't steal. I don't commit adultery. Yeah, um, most of us, if the charge is hypocrisy, most of us, I'm sure, would not be quick to raise your hand and say, yep, I'm a hypocrite. I claim it. It's not until we begin to understand all that the law of God requires of us that we fall one by one under its conviction. You may well say, well, at least I've never murdered anybody. But of course, you would then be quickly reminded by some Bible student that Jesus has said, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister falls under the condemnation of the sixth commandment, right? So it's not going to do here to claim innocence because you've more or less kept God's law. That's not going to work. Everyone has sinned. All have sinned. But the larger point that Paul is making here has to do not with prosecuting every individual Jew, but with the nation of Israel as a whole. Stay with me. This is so important. Remember, I said that the question that's lurking right underneath, if not right on the surface of the text of the entire New Testament, but certainly in Romans, is the question, so just who are God's people? That everyone knows what the answer should be, but, but Paul is saying, look, look, how can you claim to be God's people if you keep breaking the law of God that you boast in? That you claim to be a marker of your identity as God's own. If you keep saying, I am one of God's people because, and then you don't live up to that standard that you just said, on what basis can you keep saying you are one of God's people? The question sticks because Paul is not dealing here with individual salvation, but with God's greater promise of of cosmic salvation. You see, the promise, remember, what's the promise? What has God promised to do? He has not merely promised to give you some life after death. His promise is resurrection. His promise is the kingdom of God. His promise is new creation, full embodiment. This is the Old Testament promise. So, If the promise is that God is going to bring this salvation to his entire created universe through his chosen people, then the question you should be asking is, who are the people? Who are the people? It certainly does not appear, Paul is saying, the proof I have is right in front of you. It certainly doesn't appear that it's the nation of Israel because at the time that he writes this letter, he's writing to a nation still in exile. Under the dominion of Rome, not at all fulfilling the divine calling outlined in the prophets or in Paul's sketch in verses 17 to 20. You see what he's doing? He's saying, you call yourself a Jew. You think you're a member of God's people. If so, if so, then how come you are still under the domination of Rome? You're not, you're not bringing light to the Gentiles. You are under punishment of God's wrath. You're in exile. 
You're a slave. You're not bringing light to anyone. Now look at verse 24. In verse 24, Paul cites from Isaiah 52, 5. And I would love for you to turn there if you can. Just find Isaiah 52, verse 5, because this is really powerful what he does. Paul says in verse 24, citing Isaiah 52, he says, The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You say you're the people of God, but the people of God are the kind of people who bring God's praise from the nations, not shame and dishonor. Those words in Isaiah summarize the prophet's contention that the reason why Israel was under the domination of a foreign power was because of national sin, because of the nation's failure to uphold the law of God. And as long as Israel remained in exile, the salvation for which they were looking had not yet arrived. They were still under judgment. They were still in their sin. Or to put it bluntly, the Messiah hasn't come. God's name is being blasphemed by the Gentiles, who everyone could see from the nearest centurion on the street was still the one in power here. Now, do you see, brothers and sisters, if you're following this at all, it's at this point, it's at this point that the scandal of the gospel of Jesus is made plain. Paul is casting shade on the understanding that to be a Jew marked one as a member of the people of God. How can that be, Paul implies, when Jews have failed to bring honor to their God by their own disobedience to his law? The people of God must be marked by adherence to God's law so that the nations around say, great is that God, not this God's powerless. He's nothing. He's insignificant. He's irrelevant. Where is he? Which is exactly what Rome is saying every time a citizen says, Caesar is Lord. You see it? Okay, so it would seem then that if we're following Paul's prosecution, he's basically left as hopeless. There is no one left who can rightly claim to be a member of God's chosen people. I mean, if not even a Jew can make such a claim... Who is left to be marked as one of God's own? And the answer comes to us in verses 25 to 29, and it's shocking. It's, it's scandalous. God's people must be marked by circumcision, but it's a circumcision of the heart. Now, I want you to see in verses 25 to 27, Paul does not say that law-keeping is no longer a marker of God's people. He doesn't say it. In fact, he upholds that argument. He upholds it. God's people are those who keep the precepts of the law, verse 26. In fact, if one does in, does in, fact, what, does in fact obey what the law requires, his uncircumcision, Paul says, your non-Jewishness, will be regarded, counted as a true circumcision. And he says the opposite is true as well. If you break the law, verse 25, you may be circumcised. You may have the mark of being among God's covenant people, but it's counted as uncircumcision. 
So Paul is not opposed to circumcision as the God-given marker of membership in the Old Covenant. He's not repudiating that. In other words, this, this is our important point for us. The gospel he preaches does not do away with the Old Covenant, but instead fulfills it. What we have in the gospel is not a renouncing of God's promise in the Old Testament. It's not God saying, I tried one way, I failed, let's try a different way. It is what Paul is telling us. It is in the gospel we see that everything God has promised, everything that God has promised in the Old Testament is coming to pass. Oh, man. If I stood up here today, I mean, you've given me this much time. If I stood up here today and said, I want to announce to you today that a prophecy has been fulfilled. It got quiet. I like that. So you'd, you'd, you'd hang with me for just a second. Let's see. Let's see. That's what Paul's doing. The gospel Paul preached was scandalous. He's saying not, well, hey, I know that you're still under the persecution of Rome, but actually you're in charge. Just name it and claim it. Go up to the centurion and tell him. See how that works for you. (laughs) Paul says, no, it actually is being fulfilled, but in a way that is scandalous. Look what he says. In the gospel of Jesus, we find not an entirely new thing. It's the realization of a very old thing. The gospel, Paul says, is to be seen in line with what Israel has been hoping for all along. When God's salvation comes, God's people will be marked once more by adherence to God's law. Remember, that's a marker. If you're truly among God's people, then you have to be marked by true righteousness, not pretend righteousness, true righteousness. And Paul is saying, God has marked his people. And, and Paul is writing Romans to tell us this salvation has come. Wake up to it. See it. And this explains the curious words that Paul writes next. Starting in verse 28, he writes, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart. Again, notice that Paul is not overturning the rite of circumcision as a marker of God's people, but he is saying that it can be fulfilled in a different way. It can be what he calls a matter of the heart or an inward circumcision. Now, how can Paul say that? How do you know Paul isn't preaching a false gospel? And this should matter to you. If you're getting your doctrine from a book like Romans, then you better be sure that Paul is in line with the Old Testament and not out of line with it. We should be suspicious of anyone coming along and saying, remember how you were told you had to do this? Well, actually, (laughs) actually, you don't have to do that. You can just do it in your heart. Hmm. That sounds nice. I'll take that option, right? You don't, you, don't, you don't need to come to church. You can just do it in your heart. How's that? Set you free, right? Sunday mornings, reclaimed again. So you should be suspicious of someone talking like that. That's how Paul's talking. You should, 
We, I mean, this, man, you guys, come on. This is crazy stuff. You guys, we've been listening to Paul for all these years. Do you feel the weightiness when he's writing this? You're supposed to be scandalized by this. If you're going to get the gospel. You see, Paul did not invent this idea. He said it in the same scripture that he cited. He saw what he's saying in the same scripture that he cited back in verse 24. Are you still in Isaiah 52? I had you turn there. Are you still there? If you read on in Isaiah 52, you're going to see immediately after verse 5, immediately after God's name is blasphemed among you. How could you be the people of God? The very next verse, we find these words. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together, they sing for joy. For eye to eye, they see the return of the Lord to Zion. This is the promise. This is, God is coming. His kingdom is arriving right here. That's what Paul's saying. So break forth together into singing. You waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Paul is saying, that's what's happening. In the gospel, this is coming to pass. He believed that this good news of happiness had arrived. God had returned to his city. He had begun to reign again. The exile of his people was now over. And God was being glorified through them once again, no longer blasphemed. Isaiah's prophecy matches the prophecy of Ezekiel. I'm going to end with this, but I'd love for you to flip over to the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 36. Isaiah's prophecy is a mirror image of what Ezekiel says in in chapter 36. He lamented the fact that Israel had profaned God's holy name and had been sent into exile. Just look at it. It's Ezekiel 36, 20. But... Just as in Isaiah, this charge against God's people came also with the announcement of a remedy. And when we see what follows in Ezekiel, you can see that Paul had this remedy in mind. And when he's writing his gospel, when he's explaining the gospel, he's thinking in terms of Isaiah 52 and Ezekiel 36. So so should you and me. God said, I had concern, this is Ezekiel 36, God said, I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations. God promised to vindicate the holiness of his great name. And as for his people, what about his people? Look what he says. Just Ezekiel 36, I don't know what verse this is, 24, I think. God says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. Look what he says. I will give you a new heart. 
I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Circumcised heart. That's what Paul's talking about. And I will put my spirit within you. I will cause you to walk in my statutes. See it? True righteousness. And be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. This is why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because this is happening right in front of your eyes. Ezekiel's prophecy is coming true. What is it then that marks out the people of God according to Ezekiel? It's this inner transformation. It's a new heart, a new spirit within. It's the promise that God would put his own spirit within, causing them to walk in his ways. This is how God's people are marked when God's salvation comes, when his kingdom comes. So I'm asking you this morning, brothers and sisters, do you have this new heart? Does God's spirit dwell within you? Do you have the markers that identify you as a member of God's family, his true people? And if not, how do you get it? How do you get in? If you're not sure, what can you do? What should you do? The answer, unfortunately, will take 14 more chapters to unfold before us. But Paul has already shown his hand, and we must do the same here even as we end our study this morning. Trust in Jesus. Believe the good news about Jesus. He is the Messiah of Israel. This good news is the power of God for salvation to anyone. Hear me? Anyone who believes. In Jesus alone will you find the true marks of God's people, true righteousness, lives that bring honor to God, and the promise of a heart that has been transformed by God's Spirit. You cannot put your hope anywhere else. So turn and trust in Christ. Let's pray together.